Ever had those days where you like just wish you would have stayed in bed? <laughs> like no matter what happened, you had all these grand plans, you've been thinking about all the important things that maybe you needed to do, and from the moment that you get out of bed, it seems like everything is just against you. Like things are not working out the way you hoped they would. Your conversations that you're having with people are just going over their heads. You're, you're not effective in, in your work that you do. You show up to work and everything that you do all day long just feels like it's, it's not working out. And then you make it home, you, you drive home. Maybe you, maybe you get cut off on the freeway that day. Maybe you go to the grocery store, but they're all out of your favorite candy that you were going to buy to console yourself. And, you know, maybe you get home and there's trouble at home and, the, and your kids having trouble with their homework and you're having trouble in your marriage and just everything feels like a country music song. Like, like that's the only way to describe it sometimes. It's like everything is just going wrong. And at some point on days like that, and I've felt this way myself, at some point in days like that, you just feel like a failure. Anybody relate to that feeling? Ever gotten to the end of a day and you just feel like a failure? Like you had so many aspirations and grand plans and things you really wanted to do, but you just failed to meet even your own expectations in those moments. And if you have felt that way, you are certainly not alone. The Bible is in fact full of people who have experienced that same kind of feeling. And to feel like a failure is, is really hard for us to accept sometimes. Because we want to succeed. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I want to do today? <laughs> I don't want to totally and utterly fail. <laughs> Nobody says that. We all wake up in the morning and we want to succeed. We want to do well. We want things to go our way. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes things don't go our way. Sometimes we do fail and we go through difficulty and struggle and things that are happening to us. Would anyone purposefully choose to fail, though? Here's the thing, because I know failure sometimes happens to us and we feel sort of dejected and, and, and downtrodden when we actually fail and when things are happening to us maybe that we can't control. But what if we chose failure? I don't think any of us would purposely choose failure. But you know who did choose failure? Jesus. It's hard for us, I think, sometimes in our minds to think about how Jesus failed. And maybe even the thought of that kind of is, is offensive to you. Maybe even thinking in your mind about Jesus as a failure, maybe that's, maybe that's something that you struggle to actually accept or believe. Jesus, have no mistake, make no mistake, Jesus failed on purpose. And a lot of you are probably wondering, where on earth is this lesson going? <laughs> God, please turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 12, because this is, I think, what the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to see. And by the way, it's actually the, the words in the song that we just sang, 191, tell me the story of Jesus. Notice that the first verse paints this picture of a, of a glorious, joyful scene where Jesus is born and the angels are rejoicing. And notice as the second verse and the third verse sort of carry on from that story, it gets bleaker and bleaker to the point where in the last verse, he is writhing in anguish and pain. Jesus, from the perspective of the religious leaders, from the perspective of the, the culture and society in which he lived, Jesus 
purposefully failed for every one of us. Jesus was rejected. And that is what the Hebrew writer is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, I think we know very well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why should we run with such endurance? Hebrew writer, as he says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you think about that. Just think about what the Hebrew writer is saying there. For the joy that was set before him, he suffered shame and went to the cross. And in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus suffered shame. He suffered rejection. Jesus, from the perspective of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus failed. They won. They killed him. They sent him to the cross where they wanted to send him throughout his entire ministry, and they won from their perspective. Now, obviously, we know the rest of the story. This is where, like, Paul Harvey would be really good in this lesson to just come along and tell us, like, no, that's not where the story ends, everyone. Yeah, we know that. We know, of course, that Jesus was victorious, and that's what this passage is telling us here. He endured such hostility against himself. He suffered shame. He endured ridicule, but he won. And he's seated now at the right hand of the throne of God and praise him. But he failed from the perspective of the religious leaders, and he was okay with that. And what I want to ask ourselves this morning is just a few questions thinking along these lines. And the big idea really in this lesson is just to focus on the fact that Jesus Christ, throughout his ministry, was purposefully polarizing during that time 2,000 years ago when he taught, and he continues to demand that we make a choice today. Jesus did not come around saying smooth and comfortable things for people. Jesus did not show up on the scene wearing all the right clothes and saying all the right things so that all the important people, all the religious people, would accept him and welcome him in, welcome him in and just be overjoyed that he was here. Jesus made an intentional choice throughout his life to be rejected. He made an intentional choice throughout his life to fail from the perspective of the people who really he was here to teach, who, he, who really he was here to, to be with. And he was okay with that. And there's a thought exercise that I do from time to time. Maybe you've done it before. And of course, we all you know, saw the bracelets like, what, what, 20 years ago now? It feels like just yesterday. But the WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? And maybe the thought experiment we take up in our minds is to say, well, what would Jesus do today? And I really love that thought experiment. Honestly, I love to think 2,000 years later, after Jesus' ministry, what would he think about the Monte Vista Church of Christ? What would he think about us as his church? Would he recognize us? Would he, would he see us as one of his? Or would we look at him and say, no, Jesus, you failed our test. 
Because that's what the religious leaders back in Jesus' day looked at him and saw. They said, Jesus of Nazareth, you, you carpenter's son, you have failed our test. Would he have failed our test? Would Jesus, if he came into our assembly today, would we recognize him as the true son of God? Or would we think to ourselves, you're a little out there, Jesus. You're a little, you're a little too far-fetched for us. Let's just talk about that for a few minutes here this morning, because Jesus had failed beliefs. That's really where I want to start this lesson. We're going to consider some passages out of John and Matthew. So if you kind of want to bookend, maybe throw a thumb in John or Matthew, we're going to go back and forth, because John chapter 5, I think, is a great starting point for this lesson, because Jesus had some beliefs that really did not pass the muster of, of the religious leaders of his day. Because as you see how he was healing people. He was healing people on the Sabbath, in fact, in the beginning of chapter 5. We find out that in verse 17, Jesus answered these people who were sort of confused as to whether or not he was allowed to do these things. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then in verse 18, we read about how the Pharisees felt about that statement. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus had some very extreme teaching. He was, he was out there and really just polarizing with his message that I am God's son. He says, my father is working and I am working. And all the Pharisees, all the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. Jesus was saying, I am God's son. And he, he made no bones about it. He, this, he was not equivocating. This is a fact. I am God's son. And he said that clearly enough to where now they wanted to kill him because he was, in their minds, a little too extreme. You're a little too blasphemous, Jesus. You're a little too out there. You are not allowed to say that you're God's son. Of course, they didn't see the miracles. They didn't interpret the signs. They didn't accept all the amazing things that they were seeing with their eyes, all they could think of was that his words were offensive to them. It kind of, kind of reminds me of the study that we're having now in the Old Testament, thinking about how Pharaoh, he was not able to see the signs right before him so clearly there, and he rejected those signs and rejected the people and just did what he wanted to do. And that is the, the hard-heartedness that we see in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. His beliefs were a little bit too extreme. But not only that, not only were Jesus' beliefs a little bit too extreme, but Jesus also took some very extreme positions against sin. And of course, you know where we're going with that in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus was not only very clear about who he was, but he was also very clear about how serious sin is. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the great Sermon on the Mount, of course, we see Jesus saying very clearly again about how seriously we should be taking sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 27, back up, sorry. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman and is lustful with intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is taking the conversation about adultery even further there. Saying, oh, you know, you may not have committed the act, 
But if you're lusting after a woman in your heart, you've already done that. And then he goes a step further and talks about self-mutilation. He says, sin is so serious that it's better off for you to lose an eye or a hand or some other body part than for you to spend eternity in hell. Jesus was serious about sin. Jesus was not just saying out in the world, oh, it's, it's fine, everybody's fine. You can live that way. You can make your choice. You can do what's, what makes you happy. No, Jesus came in and said, this is serious stuff. Sin is something that we are not messing around with. And you are going to spend eternity in hell unless you fix the situation that you're in. And Jesus got right up in people's face with his beliefs about sin, with his beliefs about himself and who he was as the son of God. And we see how offensive that was to people. It's a little bit of an academic exercise, again, if we just sort of look back to the Pharisees and we think about them. And I think it's important for us to understand the Pharisees and the problems that they had with Jesus. But unless it hits home for us, I think we miss the point. And so really the question that I want us all to ask ourselves is, would Jesus' beliefs have failed my test? Do I, do I really believe? If Jesus had come to me, if I had lived 2,000 years ago, and I was in the crowd listening to Jesus say, I am God's son, would I have said, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't think so, Jesus. Or would I have said, yeah, I believe that. Because in general, we see that the large majority of people, especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day, rejected that idea. They did not want to believe that. There were a very small number of disciples who actually adopted that idea, believed it to the point where it changed their life and they followed Jesus as his disciples. There were very few people who accepted that he was God's son. Would I have accepted that he was God's son? Is this the Jesus that I am looking for? Is this the Christ that I have been waiting for? Or would I have been offended by his strong stand about himself as God's son? Would I have been offended about Jesus' strong stand against sin? Would I have said, well, you know, Jesus, of course, I'm, I'm, I know that we're not supposed to commit adultery, but, you know, it's not looking at a woman, it's not that bad. I, I don't think you should be so serious, Jesus, about, oh, and you think that I should cut off my body parts to, to wind up in heaven someday? I, I don't think so, Jesus, that's a little bit too extreme. And I wonder if Jesus had come, come into our midst 2,000 years later and he were, he were standing there with us, would he teach a, a, an offensive message to us? Would his beliefs step on our toes? Or would he pass our test? Would we say, yes, Jesus, of course, whatever you say, I will do. If you say you are God's son, I believe it. Would he have passed our test or would he have failed our test? In his beliefs and the things that he taught and spoke, but also not only his beliefs, but would his actions have failed our test. Jesus, back in his day, had some very failed actions. A lot of the things that Jesus undertook in his life, not only the beliefs, not only his teachings, but the things that he did throughout his life were kind of a failure in the society that he was in. Again, John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we find a, a great story here. And in John's account, John's gospel seems to just indicate that this is like right off the bat, right in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if you sort of correlate this story to many of the other accounts in the other Gospels, you might get a sense that this is actually later on in Jesus' life. But I want you to imagine 
If you're just thinking about this from John's gospel's perspective, imagine not knowing anything about Jesus, not knowing anything about who this guy is walking around saying he's God's son. And what if you saw him walk into the temple with a whip? What if you saw him clean the house, clean up the temple of God? What if you saw that, him making a whip of cords, driving them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, saying, take away these things, do not make my father's house a house of trade? What would you have done if you saw this man who claimed to be God's son, who claimed, well, everyone was calling him a rabbi and a great teacher. No rabbi or great teacher that I know walks into the temple with a whip, do they? That's a little bit extreme, Jesus. That's a little bit out there. Nobody does that. And, and this is just the first time maybe some of them are seeing or hearing about Jesus, possibly. And here he is coming in there with a whip. Jesus was cleaning house, though. He was not okay with the, with the existing situation of the worship at the time. And I want to kind of step back just in the history of, of the temple and what we know about the temple. You know how Jesus' parents went to the temple when he was a baby, a child, to, to offer sacrifices and everything. They did all of these things. Can you imagine them going into the temple? And how, who was there? You remember the, the old people who were there? who were waiting for Jesus, who were rejoicing over Jesus. Imagine these faithful, God-fearing prophets who were there in the temple waiting for Jesus, but watching all the while, while there was trade going on, while there was exchanging of goods. I don't think this was just a unique uh, event or thing that happened just as Jesus. This was something that it was like the boiling the frog kind of scenario, right? Where like over time, they just sort of do, started doing these things they started adding these practices. Can you imagine even at Jesus' birth as he's brought to the temple, these God-fearing people, how did they feel about this going on? I don't know, but I have to imagine that a God-fearing, God-loving person is going to look at that and say, this is wrong. But the Pharisees of the day, they just kept it going until Jesus finally came around and said, I'm cleaning house. I am taking a stand. Zeal for the Lord's house will consume me, as all the disciples remembered that great prophecy, and he comes in and cleans house. Jesus was having none of it, but then also we see that he just gets into the face of their traditions. I mean, that is, of course, the actions that Jesus takes that are so offensive so often is his stand against the traditions of the religious leaders of the day. In Matthew chapter 15, of course, this great story about how the scribes and the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples and how the disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. And the disciples you know, really just seem to innocently be doing this. And Jesus hears this complaining going on by the Pharisees. And they say, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And you remember where he goes on there? Well, I... Remember, we did a lesson not too long ago about how Jesus attacked their traditions. He says, you, you really have a fine way of, of rejecting the commandments of the Lord because you basically say, hey, you don't have to honor your father and mother because you've given your money to the Lord, and so you don't have to take care of them the way the Lord has told you to. And he's saying, your traditions are a problem, and he gets right in their face. He has no time for it. 
And their traditions are standing in the way of them really accepting who Jesus was. His disciples, him, constantly in the actions that they took, they didn't wash their hands. Oh, Jesus, you've broken our tradition. They're, they're, they're rolling wheat in their fingers in the, in the field on what? On the Sabbath. Oh, you're, you're, breaking our, you're breaking the laws of the Sabbath. They're just nitpicking. They're looking for excuses. And all the while, they're just constantly looking at the things Jesus does and saying, you have failed our test. You are not one of us. And you know what? That's true, isn't it? Jesus wasn't one of them. Jesus was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a scribe. He was not one of the religious elite leaders of the day. He was not one of them. Because he wasn't a hypocrite. He was sincere. And everything that he did was correct and good, even going into the temple with a whip because they should have known better. Even in the traditions that apparently the people held up so highly that he was breaking, intentionally, I'm sure, so that he could get in their face and, and help them see, no, you're being hypocrites. All the tithing of mint and dill and cumin that they should have, should have been doing, but they'd forgotten all the weightier matters of the law. And Jesus constantly got in their face to tell them that their traditions were a problem. And of course... We look at the Pharisees and we wag our heads and we say, you know, these, these religious people, I, I, can't imagine, I can't imagine why they would have done that. But would Jesus' actions have failed my test? Would my traditions, would the things that I hold up so strongly and importantly, if Jesus were not following my traditions today, would, would Jesus fail my test? You know, we, we as the church, we're different people. And that's a good thing. We're, we're peculiar, we're different, we're set apart, we're holy from the world. But sometimes we allow traditions to divide us when they should not. And Sean's done a lot of teaching on this recently. And so I'll just point you back to a lot of the, the conversations we've had in Bible classes and in recent sermons about traditions, because there are so many things that we could hold up today in our modern 2022 Church of Christ thought processes that could really get in our way if Jesus had come in and not followed those things. What if Jesus walked in the door and didn't pull his peg? What if Jesus walked in and was not wearing a suit and tie? What if Jesus walked in and had a comment to make during the sermon? I don't know. W would Jesus have done that? There, there are a lot of questions. Would Jesus stand up if there was something that was said that needed to be clarified? And, 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 or would he have waited until a proper and quiet time to take care? I don't know. There are just so many traditions. There are so many things that we put in place, and, and they are that way for a reason. And we need to be very clear on what is and is not correct, what is and is not binding. And just because someone doesn't do things the way that I would do them does not mean they're going to hell, unless, in fact, those things are important to make a distinguishment about. I'm not giving you a set of rules here, but I am just helping us to think, like, did, would Jesus follow our traditions today? Probably not. I have a friend 
this is just a slight diversion. I just want to throw this in here because it's super important to me and I've been thinking about it. I have a friend who continues to remind me over and over again that Jesus was not white. You know that? You realize that? You think about it. We view Jesus. Tell me the story of Jesus. You picture in your mind all of who Jesus is. Was Jesus a Caucasian male? Probably not. Don's shaking his head, so there you go. If you want to take it up with anyone, you can take it up with Don. <laughs> Jesus was not a white man. He was not going to fit our mold in maybe our mind about who this milquetoast, mild-mannered Clark Kent Jesus was. That's not who Jesus was. And we need to get out of our mind who we think Jesus was and put into our mind who he really is. And would he approve of what I am doing today? Would he approve of the actions that I'm doing today? Would he approve of the, the cleaning out of the things that don't need to be in my life, in this church, in our community? Would he approve of those things? It's a good question because as you go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it is a great conversation about how Jesus looks to the churches and says, you're doing some things that are good, but I have a few things against you. And it's a question we need to be asking ourselves all the time. What would Jesus say to us? Would Jesus and his actions fail my test? Or would we look at Jesus and say, absolutely, Jesus, I'm willing to follow exactly what you are doing in your life. So finally, and maybe this is the most important, is failed associations. Because I think, of course, that Jesus, probably maybe one of the most offensive things that Jesus did is stand in the face of, really, the racism going on at his time. Jesus was not about looking down on other people. Jesus was not about holding grudges against people, and he was not about holding people's sin over their head. Of course, we go to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They could not handle the fact that this supposedly religious person was eating with people who obviously were sinners. Maybe one of the most important stories for us to remember as we think about evangelism and going out into the world and teaching other people is that our Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And of course, as he would go on to tell them that he is the great physician and that the, the one who heals other people needs to be among those who are sick. He came here for them. And it's so important that we remember that Jesus was out there trying to reach the lives of sinners. Would that have been too much for me? I don't know. But then if you think about John chapter 4, John chapter 4, again, to this point that we've made a lot of times, maybe in some recent lessons, is how Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans clearly were not people who the, who the Jews wanted to be around. And of course, as Jesus was there talking to this woman, the disciples come back in verse 27, and they were marveling that he was talking with a woman, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman alone. But they couldn't even figure out what to say. They were so shocked, they were so flabbergasted that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. No one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
I mean, they, couldn't even, they couldn't even bring themselves to, to ask these questions because they were so shocked that he was doing these things. And of course, we understand that Jesus was reaching all people. He wasn't just reaching the Jews. He wasn't just reaching the religious elite. He was reaching the sinners. He was reaching the Gentiles. He was reaching the people that people hated. And he reaches you and me today, and not just us as religious, nice, well-dressed people on a Sunday morning. He reaches everyone in this valley, everyone in this country, and everyone in this world. And that is something we all need to remember. It is not just for the nice, well-dressed people that Jesus came to this earth to die. It was for everyone. And that changes the way that we think. But would we, would we have seen a Jesus who welcomed and opened his arms to people who were broken and in need? Would we have seen a Jesus like that and say, no, that's a little too extreme for me? No, you're spending a little too much time with sinners, Jesus. I don't think so. Or would we have said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that too? Because that's exactly what his disciples did. That's exactly what the apostles did. For the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts, all throughout the rest of the letters of Paul and James and Peter and the rest, we see them going out into all the world. And that is what they did because they believed that Jesus had the right idea about who needs to be saved. These are just a few questions, a few thoughts for us to think about this morning, just really briefly. Jesus failed from the perspective of the religious leaders. He failed their tests on purpose so that he could be despised and rejected and would go to that cross where he would die, but that he would be raised again the third day in ultimate victory, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we read about in Hebrews chapter 12, that should give us hope, that should give us encouragement, and no matter what in your life, look at Jesus, strip away your understanding of who you think he is, and see him for who he truly was, the failed and rejected one who saved the whole world. And if you're here this morning and you are not someone who has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not someone who has repented of your sins, confessed his great name before men, and has not been baptized, then we would love to help you start that journey today. We would love to help you become a child of the Lord's. And remember, you are going to go out into this world, and they are not going to understand you. They are not going to believe you. They are not going to like you, just like they did not like, believe, or understand the king. And that's okay. Because if we stand with him, we will be raised with him in eternity. You're ready to give your life to the Lord. Please come as we stand and sing.